This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. There was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people so that when we needed them, they could fight the battles that we never could. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, James Hamrick, and as always, I am joined here with my co-host, Gabe Green. What's going on, man? Hey, I, I almost went into uh, Scarlett Johansson's voice for the, for the <laughs> second line of that quote. I've watched that Avengers, uh, the uh, Infinity War teaser, maybe a few too many times at this point. Embedded in the old brain. Yeah. Um... So, hey, how's it going? Uh, not too bad. I've been without uh, internet for about a week. I It's been horrible. So I like to think that I'm not one of those losers who's just a slave to, you know, their phone and, and being online. But I, I definitely am. And this past week has made that very evident. <laughs> we all are. It's too late. The, the robots have won. There's a Black Mirror episode about it somewhere, I'm sure. We are the Black Mirror episode. All right, uh, so we have been working our way through the MCU over the past uh, month-ish or so, and now we have finally come to the uh, culmination of Phase 1, um, All these, the thing that all these uh, disparate films have been building towards, probably the most uh, ambitious crossover event in cinematic history. Um, maybe Who Framed Roger Rabbit uh, was a comparable, I don't know, I don't know what it was like back at the time, but, and uh, of course it is uh, Marvel's The Avengers. Uh, before we get our uh, discussion on that, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please head over to iTunes and uh, leave us a rating and review. And also, uh, like us on Facebook, uh, where you can keep up to date with all the latest episodes and uh, leave feedback that can be right on the show. And speaking of that feedback, I asked on Facebook what our, our listeners thought of this, and a couple responded. Shane said, the best movie of the MCU. Next. Uh, and Jeff responded with that classic Magneto gif of uh, him saying, perfection which yeah. uh yeah all right all right but well, we can end the show there right there <laughs> so as we uh let's just move right into the main discussion on the film uh starting with the all of the crazy events that led to this film being made um so going way back to the original uh concept for these characters uh the avengers were created in 1963 by stan lee and jack kirby um the original lineup consisted of iron man thor the hulk ant-man and the wasp all of them were very new characters who have been created between uh, 1962 and 1963. Uh, the, the villain of Avengers number one was also Loki. Um, Cap was soon resurrected from the 40s and then joined the team in Avengers number four. The characters of Black Widow and Hawkeye uh, were both created in 1964 and then joined the Avengers later in, later on in the 60s. So all of the characters kind of came right, right around that really uh, busy time for them. That's, I can't imagine what it would have been like at the Marvel offices in the <laughs> 60s. Like, just creating one character, you know, one iconic character after another. I, I, I'm guessing they also create a lot of other characters that we've never heard of that just like died after their first run. <laughs> it would be fun to go back in time to see what all they were working on. Like, Cause there's no way that he created like a Spider-Man every time. Yeah. Comics are such a fun thing to delve back into. Like every time there's a, a new comic book movie, you always find these articles of like, Here's 20 villains you're never going to see. And it's like Condiment Man and, and Quilt King and stuff. It's Stilt great. Man. He's got stilts. 
So the Avengers had um, appeared in several animated shows across the years, but um, unlike all the previous MCU films, uh, there were no notable attempts to try and bring them into live action uh, before Marvel created its cinematic universe. Um, The first announcements for the film came from Avi Arad in 2005, after Marvel Studios had set itself up independently to produce comic book films. As we saw, they planned to introduce all the major players in solo films before combining them together in an epic crossover. In 2007, Zach Penn, who had written The Incredible Hulk and uh, several X-Men films, was hired to write the Avengers script. In 2009, John Favreau confirmed that he would not be directing the film. Apparently, there was a lot of uh, speculation about whether he would, uh, but he did guide it as an executive producer. There's a quote from me said, it's going to be hard because I was so involved in creating the world of Iron Man and Iron Man is a very tech based hero. And then with the Avengers, you're going to be introducing some supernatural aspects because of Thor. Mixing the two of those works very well in the comic books, but it's going to take a lot of thoughtfulness to make it all work and not blow the reality that we've created. Then I I read an article where Zach Penn was asked about the difference uh, in working on a comic book film for an independent studio like Marvel as opposed to a traditional film studio. And he said, pretty much night and day at, at Marvel. Everyone has read every comic book. They're big fans of it. We've kind of moved past the normal fights that you have and just talk about what it would take to make a good movie. And also, uh, during that time, my job was to keep an eye on all the other movies, writing stuff that could be set up and paid off, and with the help of the Marvel executives, create an overarching story or a Bible for the five movies so that we would know uh, where we were going uh, and where the Avengers could be would be. And then another quote, he said, My job was to keep revising the draft. For about four or five years, that's what I did. The story was basically the same, but it kept shifting. And then once Joss Whedon came in, he took over from there. And speaking of Joss Whedon, in 2010, uh, the nerd god emperor Joss Whedon uh, from such shows as Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, uh, Firefly, and of course his most important work, Dr. Harble's sing-along blog, was hired to write and direct the film. And when uh, Whedon was asked what drew him to the project, he said, These people shouldn't be in the same room, let alone on the same team. And that's the definition of family. And that's that's kind of a thing that goes through a lot of his um, a lot of his work. You know, the idea of the, the found family. I think it is probably most obvious in like the Avengers or you know Serenity and Firefly, where you just have all these kind of very unique individuals just bouncing off each other. That's what makes his work you know quite good. After reading Penn's script, <laughs> Whedon told Feige, "I don't think you have anything. You need to pretend this draft never happened." And in a later quote, he said, "There was a script." There just wasn't a script that I was going to film a word of. Um, ultimately, Penn would receive a story by credit in the final film, uh, with Whedon receiving the sole screenwriter credit, though. Brutal. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, like, I actually heard like he actually like, fought in the arbitration process so that to keep uh, Zach Penn from receiving a credit because he apparently disliked his work so much. Oof. I'm actually really curious to see that draft now. I wish it was away. So when it came to casting the film. Robert Downey Jr. obviously returned as part of his uh, initial four-film deal, uh, though he's moved on from his $500,000 paycheck from Iron Man to a $50 million paycheck with Avengers. It's a, a little bit of a raise. That, that has to include, like, back-end stuff, because that's, that's what, a fifth of the budget? Yeah, and that's the thing, like... You know, people. That doesn't, make, that doesn't make sense, like right off the bat. Yeah, I mean, I would have gotten that for Iron Man three after the Avengers, but yeah, it, I don't. It's crazy. Maybe it's just a great negotiator. Um, <laughs> but uh, Downey actually said that he he pushed Whedon initially to try, try to make Stark the lead. He said, uh, "Well, I said I need to be in the opening sequence. I don't know what you're thinking, but Tony needs to drive this thing." He was like, "Okay, let's try that." 
We tried it and it didn't work because this is a different sort of thing. The story and the idea and the theme is the theme and everybody is just an arm of the octopus. During the writing process, I'm, I'm glad that, that Whedon stuck to his guns and they, they just looked at what worked and, and kept it because something that I thought was really surprising is... He's like the fourth or fifth main character introduced. Uh, for Banner, Edward Norton did not return. Uh, I don't know how much y'all covered uh, on the Incredible Hulk episode, but I'm just going to talk about some of uh, some of what happened. Uh, these are comments made, you know, because originally the firing did not happen initially uh, upon Incredible Hulk's release, and there was quite a bit of time spent leading up to the filming of the Avengers that people thought that he was going to reprise his role, including both parties. However, sometime after the split, uh, Marvel. Uh, and Kevin Feige re released this statement and said, We have made the decision to not bring Ed Norton back to portray the title role of Bruce Banner in The Avengers. Our decision is definitely not one based on monetary factors, but instead rooted in the need for an actor who embodies the creativity and collaborative spirit for our other talented cast uh, yeah, for of our other talented cast members. Yeah. The Avengers demands players who thrive working as part of an ensemble, as evidenced by Robert, Chris H, Chris E, Sam, Scarlett, and all of our talented cast. We are looking to announce a name actor who fulfills these requirements and is passionate about the iconic role in the coming weeks. Uh, <laughs> so pretty pointed. And uh, yeah. soon after, uh, Norton's agent uh, also rep replied publicly saying, this offensive statement from Kevin Feige at Marvel is a purposely misleading, inappropriate attempt to paint our client in a negative light. Here are the facts. Two months ago, Kevin called me and said he wanted Edward to reprise, his, reprise the role of Banner in The Avengers. He told me it would be his fantasy to bring Edward on stage with the rest of the cast at Comic-Con and make it the event of the convention. When I said that Edward was definitely open to this idea, Kevin was very excited and we agreed that Ed Edward should meet with Joss Whedon to discuss the project. Edward and Joss had a very good meeting confirmed by Feige to me, at which Edward said he was enthusiastic at the prospect of being part of the ensemble cast. Marvel sub subsequently made him a financial offer to be in the film, and both sides started negotiating in good faith. This past Wednesday, after several weeks of civil, uncontentious discussions, but before we had come to terms on a deal, a representative from Marvel called to say they had decided to go in another direction with the part. This seemed to us to be a financial decision, but whatever the case, it is completely their prerogative and we accept their decision with no hard feelings. We know a lot of fans have voiced their public disappointment with this, with this result, but this is no excuse for Feige's mean-spirited accusatory comments. Counter to what Kevin implies here, Edward was looking forward to the opportunity to work with Joss and the other actors in the Avengers cast, many of whom are personal friends of his. Feige's statement is unprofessional, disingenuous, and clearly def uh, defamatory. Mr. Norton's talent, tireless work ethic, and professional integrity deserves more respect, and so do Marvel's fans. The thing is, with every recasting of this type, you know, this, this happens all the time in Hollywood. You know, someone has to leave a project. They always put together this very nice letter. You know, we all respect each other. We all love each other. We love the project, but it just didn't work out. You don't make this kind of statement unless you really hate the guy's guts. Yeah. Um, so there's no way everything was all hunky-dory before this happened. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what's weird, though, is so these statements were made in 2010. Uh, in an interview, late four years later in 2014, Norton addressed the issue, and then his account kind of differs from both stories. Where he just said, my feeling was that I experimented and experienced what I wanted to. I really, really enjoyed it. And yet I looked at the balance of time and life that one spends not only making those sorts of films, but then especially putting them out and the obligations that rightly come with that. 
there were just a lot of things. I wanted more diversity. I sort of chose to continue on my path of having diversity of experiences. Maybe on some unconscious level, I didn't want to have an association with one thing in any way degrade or de degrade my effectiveness as an actor and characters. I think you can sort of do anything at once, but if you do it too many times, it can become a suit that's hard to take off in other people's eyes. And if I had continued on with it, I wouldn't have made Moonrise Kingdom or Grand Budapest or Birdman because those all overlapped with Avengers and those were more the priority for me. But I continue to be a fan and I'm really, really happy I got to do it once. Um, so it doesn't seem too bitter about it. but Which is the kind of n the normal Hollywood yeah. statement. Uh, and then, of course, uh, poor Mark Ruffalo, <laughs> friend of uh, Edward Norton, kind of has to come after all of this contentious conversation. Uh, he just... You know, that wasn't really a part of the conversation that he's wanting to, to address. His his big response was just, uh, he said in an interview, I'm a friend of Ed's, and yeah, that wasn't a great way for all that to go down. But the way I see it is that Ed has bequeathed this part to me. I look at it as my generation's Hamlet. Um, so yeah, the, the role ended up going to Mark Ruffalo. Uh, and the last little cool tidbit about Hulk, with Mark Ruffalo's performance, this was, a, this was actually the, the first time that the actor playing Bruce Banner essentially played Hulk as well because he did full mocap and everything um, which hadn't been done before. And the, the interesting thing about Mark Ruffalo is that he was uh, Leterrier's first choice for the character. I did not know that. Yeah. Oh, well, there we go. And I mean, I guess there's a history. People pretty much adore Ruffalo's take, so maybe it all worked out. Uh, and Clark Gregg returns as Coulson. There's a cool little tidbit uh, about this is Greg actually said his role was expanded significantly in the Avengers. Uh, there's a quote where he said, uh, "What Agent Coulson has become in terms of the important, uh, in terms of the important of this particular story and how important his job is in bringing the Avengers together, it kind of felt surreal, like somebody was playing a prank, and that wasn't the real script. But it wasn't. It was the real thing. I got to show up and do that stuff, and it felt like such an amazing payoff to what the journey had been, and the fact I had been doing it for five years." Um, so uh, apparently all of these, like the whole, his obsession with Captain America and his involvement and the death and everything, these were, these were things that Joss brought in later on in the script. <laughs> and I just think that had to be so cool to look at the script and be like, oh, wow, I've, I've got a lot of conversations with the Avengers, these huge actors. I mean, Joss, we obviously loved Clark Gregg enough to make a whole show about him and also cast him in his, uh, much to do about nothing movie. That's true. And I mean... I love Clark Gregg, so I'd have done the same. Really, for the only major new character uh, is the role of Maria Hill. Joss was given a, a short list of potential actresses to choose for the role, and he elected the actress he once considered for his uh, Wonder Woman film that never got made, Kobe Smulders. Uh, ironically enough, Marina Bakarin uh, of Firefly fame was also being considered and was on the short list he was presented. Um, Smolder's deal would actually integrate her into nine different films. Uh, and what's funny about her is because her role wasn't as physical. Like she has to do, like she has a role and shoot guns and stuff, but she's not in a lot. She wasn't actually given a personal trainer. So there's a quote from her where she said, I hired this amazing black ops trainer to teach me how to hold a gun, take me to a shooting range, how to hit, how to hold myself, how to walk, and basically how to look. I don't do a ton of fighting in the movie, which is why I wasn't offered a trainer, but I wanted to look like I had the ability to. Which I thought was pretty cool. And she does. Like, she has a great physical presence in the movie, so it works. Yeah, like, the, the, her, like, one little bit of action when she does the roll and pulls out the gun and shoots, I'm like, hey, yeah, I believe it. Um, there's also a lot of cameos that I'll go through real quick. Uh, 
Gwyneth Paltrow and Maximilio Hernandez both re reprised their roles uh, as Pepper Potts and Jasper's, Jasper Sitwell, respectively. Uh, Paul Bettany obviously voices Jarvis. Um, Whedon collaborator uh, Alexis Denisov portrays the other. Uh, who, that weird two-thumbed guy. Yeah, meets his demise Or four-thumbed. And Damien Poitier portrays his master, Thanos, who is actually unnamed in this whole film. Ever, I love the existence of like crazed comic book fans who know every image because I watched it and I was like, wait, what? And my brother-in-law who was next to me was like, <gasps> so I was like, okay. I'll, yeah, I'll... my first thought was like, is that Hellboy? <laughs> <laughs> Where's the horns? Powers Booth and Jenny Agutter appear as members of the World Security Council. The world's sleaziest man. <laughs> For sure. Um Obviously, Stan Lee has his cameo as a as a chess player in the little montage at the end. Uh, Harry Dean Stanton uh, has a cameo as a security guard, and Polish film director Jerzy Skolomowski appears as uh, Georgi Luchkov, uh, which is Romanov's interrogator at that opening scene. Um, lastly, uh, Enver Jokai. Uh, appears as a police officer in the Battle of New York, and he actually would go on to play Agent Daniel Sousa from Agent Carter, and he's a great character, and people should watch that show. Is he the guy that Cap tosses the gun to? Yeah. Okay, because he actually... There was, there was a larger uh, subplot that ran throughout the battle involving him and the waitress lady that he actually got killed in that battle later on in the deleted scenes. Hmm. So as far as filming, uh, filming began in April of 2011 at the Albuquerque Studios in New Mexico under the working title Group Hug. Uh, lucky these working titles. Um, Joe Wright's go-to uh, director of photography, Seamus McGarvey, was hired as the cinematographer. Um, for, the chase, uh, for the chase sequence in the opening of the car chase, they shot in abandoned limestone tunnels under Worthington, Pennsylvania. A uh, portion of the climactic battle was shot in New York City, but uh, Cleveland, Ohio was also used as a stand-in because I'm sure it's a lot easier to shoot there. Um, in reference to the, the visual style that uh, Joss Whedon brought, he said, uh, particularly with this movie, because I was shooting for 3D in a way that I didn't with Avengers Age of Ultron, I very much wanted to do shots that would go on for a while. I wanted to make the, I wanted to feel the space around us and use wider lenses. That's why I went for a 1.85 by 1 aspect ratio instead of going wider. In IMAX, I wanted to fill your eyeball completely. And uh, Seamus McGarvey said, Shooting uh, shooting 1.85 to 1 is kind of unusual for an epic film like this, but we needed the height in the screen to be able to frame all the characters like Hulk, Captain America, and Black Widow, who, who are much smaller. Uh, we had to give them all precedence and width within the frame. Also, Joss knew that the final battle sequence was going to be this extravaganza in Manhattan, so the height and vertical scale of the buildings was going to be really important. And that, that's something that's always stood out to me is the fact that this is shot in a 1.85 aspect ratio as opposed to the, uh, I think it's a two no it's a 2.39 by one i believe is like the standard um widescreen so this is this is like pretty much full screen like the kind of uh, aspect ratio you'd see mostly for tv shows and it always stood out to me as kind of odd that they shot this big film like that and but this reason actually makes a lot of sense the fact that so much of the battle is happening in like in vertical space Part of me kind of wishes that they shot like the, the film in widescreen and then towards at at the end when the portal opens and like Iron Man's looking up, if they kind of expanded the screen like they do in like the Dark Knight or whatever, you know, when they when, whenever they go to IMAX in those movies, yeah. if they had done that at the end, like I think it might have been a little better, but 
I, I definitely understand the choice now, you know, considering just the, the way they were working with, in, with that final battle. For the VFX heavy finale, they sent a small film crew to New York City to slowly go around the city getting HD images of the streets and buildings uh, so that when they would have to do green screen shots and all the elaborate uh, flying sequences, they would use images, uh, basically uh, pictures that they took of the city as backgrounds to kind of paint them over the 3D models to make it look real. And uh, that's probably why the effects hold up so well in this final sequence. Yeah, like just to talk about its post-production, it's kind of crazy how how you your brain doesn't register the fact that everything in addition to the aliens you're seeing just the buildings everything you're seeing is cgi um well it isn't actually it's pictures oh well yeah yeah <laughs> pictures it. stretch over cgi there you go. well th just the integration of it is just you know you're not seeing <laughs> these actual images as they were initially filmed it's i don't know it's a it's a really really great usage of cgi and, and blending with with uh, real images um but in post, uh, they were actually, they had reached an agreement with Sony to put the uh, amazing Spider-Man version of Oscorp Tower in the New York skyline. But they were just way too far in the filming and everything by the time that agreement was reached that, <laughs> that their skyline was set and they weren't able to, to do anything like that. Uh, also, uh, another funny tidbit is the shawarma scene was actually shot after the film's uh, world premiere it premiered at the el capitan on uh, april 11th 2012 and the shawarma scene was shot april 12th 2012 a day after uh they, they had to make up for the fact that you know like everybody doesn't look the exact same so chris evans actually wore a prosthetic jaw while filming the scene to cover up the big beard he had at the time uh and lastly one of the last little funny thing funny things about that scene is uh, there was a notable skyrocket in shawarma sales immediately following the film's release, like worldwide I mean, release. I had never heard of shawarma. I had neither <laughs> before, the, before that scene, so it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, when it came to score, uh, Al Alan Silvestri, who originally scored Captain America: The First Avenger, uh, would come back and write and compose the score for the Avengers. Uh, he said, uh, "Here's here's a quote from him on the film. He said, I've worked on films where." Uh, there have been a number of stars and certainly worked on films where there have been characters of equal weight in terms of their level of importance and profile in the film. But this one is somewhat extreme in that regard because each of these characters has their own world and it's a very different situation. It's very challenging to look for a way to give everyone the weight and consideration they need. But at the same time, the film is really about the coming together of these characters, which implies that there is this entity called the Avengers, which really has to be representative of all of them together. Uh, and so that's the idea that he used to create the main theme. Um, and Whedon said of the theme, he said, the score is very old fashioned, which is why Silvestri was perfect for this movie because he, he can give you heightened emotion, the Hans Zimmer school of I'm just feeling a lot right now, but he can also be extraordinarily cue and character specific, which I love. Uh, as I said earlier, the film's world premiere was April 11th, 2012 at the El Capitan, and then was released, and then got a wide release May 4th, 2012. All right, so James, uh, do you remember your first time seeing this movie? And uh, I'm guessing you loved it. Yeah, so my first viewing of this film, uh, like I said, I had seen all the previous ones in the theater, um, and even though I wasn't super high on Iron Man 2 at first, like we still ended up owning it, and I watched it a lot to the point where like, oh, okay, yeah, I love this movie, and I love all these movies. But it was like, it was like a tempered love. Like they were never movies that I consider to be like, had the potential to be my very favorite movies ever like no these are really good movies i like keeping up with them and, and this and that uh and then my brother-in-law was a big comic book guy and so he 
you know, he got really excited. And whenever the Avengers is coming out, we're like, we're going to have this big family thing where we watched all of the movies leading up to it. And then we're going to go see the Avengers together. And so I was going to it. I was like, okay, this is going to be really cool. The trailers look really cool. Like, I'm genuinely excited for this. And then the opening scene happens. And when the title card comes on and you see the Avengers and you hear Sylvester's like main theme, I, my whole body was covered <laughs> in goosebumps. And I looked, whoever it was, whichever family member who was sitting next to me, I just remember looking over and be like, okay, <laughs> like the potential for this movie, for like what this movie can be to me skyrocketed with the reveal of, of the name on the, on the screen. Cause it just felt in its presentation like it knew it was an epic like it was a game changer and so it was like from that moment on my mind was just telling it telling itself like you're going to love this movie the way you love like your favorite movies and so every new scene every action like i was taking it all in and just blown away by it and so when it was done i was calling all of them like you gotta see the avengers it's the most amazing movie of the year it's incredible blah 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 and, yeah, and honestly, that really hasn't died down. There was a, a short dip where that died uh, died down whenever The Dark Knight Rises came out a few months later, and I had convinced myself because I was like, well, and still am a Nolan fanboy, I was like, this is definitely better than The Avengers, though, right? But that lasted for a couple of months, and then I was like, okay, no, no, Avengers is perfect. <laughs> and it's kind of stayed that way since. Yeah, so for me, actually, I... You know, I knew absolutely nothing about comic books at this period of my life. I still don't know a lot. Um, so I had never even heard of the Avengers. And I remember, uh, like, I was, you know, coming into film. I was, like, watching a whole bunch of trailers on iTunes. like, And I saw this Marvel's The Avengers. Okay, it looks like a comic book movie. And I watched it, and I was like, oh, my gosh. They're making a movie with Iron Man, Thor, the Hulk, and that redhead chick from Iron Man 2 and Captain America. Like, oh my gosh, this is going to be so bad. There's no way There's no way they can possibly pull this off. So that was my first exposure to the, even the concept of the Avengers. And then, you know, the trailers were awesome and all that. That first teaser is so good. Yeah. And then when I, when I finally saw it, I just absolutely loved it. This, would have been the, this would have, was the first uh, MCU film that I saw in theaters. And just the moment it ended, I just, you know, I instantly wanted to watch it again. It was like, it was just one of the most absolutely entertaining, you know, movie experiences I've ever had. And I I, I went back, I, I know I, I brought my mom to see it um, uh, for her birthday, which is kind of funny because she, like, she hates anything like remotely sci-fi at all. Like her, like for her film is like period dramas. But even even she said it was pretty fun. I, I like that Tony Stark guy. Um, so yeah, I just I I absolutely love this movie when it came out, and I've you know, I've just loved it ever since. And and you know, as the MCU has grown and expanded, this film has never you know lost its place. Like as as you know among, among the, like the top two MCU films. Spoilers for our rankings. <laughs> uh oh. Um. Yes. Yeah, so just like, what is this movie, James? Why do you think? that this movie in particular is so just completely revered, you know, among genre fans and just among film people, like people who, who just like bag on the MCU for a living, like the Avengers. Why, why do you think this one works so well? I think there's just a level of confidence in this movie uh, and confidence in its characters. It's crazy. You know, whenever people, you hear all of the, the worry like from from Favreau where they're like yeah we just don't know if these characters are going to merge well and this and that 
because just watching the movie you never would have gotten that impression it's like no we're gonna we're gonna have thor land on the quinjet steal loki and then they're gonna he's gonna fight iron man and cap shows up with his shield and it's like it just it presents every character in a way that's so like so um accurate to where they've previously been presented like that's the thing it's crazy how well Joss is able to channel like the characters and who they were from previous films. Where Cap is Cap, Tony is Tony, and Thor is Thor, and Black Widow is Black Widow, and you know Fury is awesome. It's it's, it's everything that you had already loved about everything else, packaged in just such a confident blockbuster kind of way, um, and and I think what really helps this movie is. Joss Whedon's script. The dialogue is just really, really sharp. Out of this world. You know, in previous... Yeah, it's just phenomenal. It's what, you know, may be the most quotable movie even still. Uh, you know, because beforehand, the the best ones in terms of dialogue, like, you, you just had so many great lines from Iron Man 1. And, and even though Iron Man 2 isn't nearly as good of a movie, you just, you still had Tony being Tony. And so anytime he's on screen, you're sure to get, like, at, at least one great new line. But here, you know, when you've got all of these different personalities, uh, it's just a perfect mixture for great banter and back and forth and, and a, a team dynamic that's completely specific to the Avengers. Uh, and that's the thing, you know, when we, we talk about Joss Whedon's plan, you know, one of the things he said before was, uh, was he's like, one of the things he loved about the, the Avengers comic books is like, it's really cool. It's It was never my, or what he was saying was, it was never his favorite comic book. He went there for spectacle, but though like the problems that Thor faces are specific to his comic books. The the problems that Cap faces are specific to his comic books. So whenever you bring them together, you know, you've got to try to match power levels and everything. It's just it doesn't feel like it was meant to be. And he said that's where he found inspiration for what this film was. It was taking characters that aren't meant to be together and forcing them together and finding the drama of that and just allowing characters you know as close to equal screen time as you can just like letting them fight and argue and finally coalesce into something by the end of it and just just watching these personalities come together uh is so much of the joy of the movie and the last thing i'll say about why i think it works so well is you know you've got these amazing first two acts that's just introducing the plot introducing these characters finding a way to bring them all together in a way that's constantly back and forth but then not blowing the third act, you know, like so many, the, the problem with uh, some of the movies we've talked about before, even like the highly revered Iron Man one is that it kind of loses you in its third act. But once you bring them together, once you've got that money shot, it's one of the most incredible third act action sequences we had ever seen. It might be my second favorite next to just like the Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that we can bring them together and then just capitalize on it with this incredible sequence, this unapologetic alien invasion, crazy comic bookness. It's just that it's in my mind, there's really nothing negative to say about it. Yeah. And you, you would think that he, you know, all the characters that have been introduced, he could just kind of rest on the laurels of the previous film and just give us a fun victory lap. But, but the thing is, you know, he had to create a a new character for Hulk. He had to create the character of Black Widow. He had to define what Captain America is like and how he can be behaves and interacts with the modern age. Um, you know, Nick Fury, he, he had to create S.H.I.E.L.D. and and like... What is like we we saw glimpses of it, but, but nothing like what we saw in this film. Like you, know, how does Nick Fury, you know, inter, you know, uh, act in his own, you know, in his own turf? 
and then you're all in addition continuing tony's arc in a great way you know thor uh loki all these characters like he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't just like coast every character is doing something and he just you talked about the dialogue like you know, people you know, in that recently it's become popular you know, to hate on Joss Whedon's, you know, oh, it's all quippy. But they, they, they're, they're, number one, they're great quips. Like this, the quotes are amazing. But they are he he reveals character through dialogue. Every one of these dialogue scenes is is you know, telling us who these people are and you know you know what they're struggling with and all of this. It's just is it's all of that is just happening in this fun banter that's constantly going. So. You, we're just we're just getting constant, you know, great character drama every second of this film. As, as long as there are two characters in a scene together, we're learning about who these people are as humans. Yeah, and I think it's just unfortunate. Like, I still love the MCU, but like he kind of set the template here in terms of well, you know, it, it was you, you know I guess set with with the previous films, but really this set expectations for what we want, and so we have kind of you know not every writer can be Joss Whedon. Not everybody has that. And so people start to hate on quips and unfortunately Joss gets lumped into that whenever we don't realize like we were all splitting our sides laughing and just and cheering and fist pumping during this movie when we all first saw it. Yeah. And there's a, a bit of dialogue that really stood out to me is where um, when Cap and uh, Thor, not Thor, Hulk first meet or Banner is, you know, where does you can find the cube? You know, is that the only word on me? Only word I care about. And like, that bit of dialogue, you have, you know, Banner's insecurities and self-loathing and, you know, Cap's, you know, you know his you know, moral uprightness and he's just a good stand-up guy. Like, I don't care about your power. I don't care that you're a total freak. If, you know, if you're, 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 you're a person, you have value on this team. Like, all of it is just in the, you know, that tiny bit of dialogue. I wrote down my notes, you know, that is how you do dialogue. And that's, that is happening in every single scene throughout the entire film. Yeah, it, and that's it, what's what's so crazy is that, like you said, he kind of re, he had to redefine Banner, uh, and there wasn't really much of uh, Natasha there in the first place, and he really had to create the character. He he had the kind of snarky note, not no nonsense, but the the more ground level kind of person that Clint was from Thor, but he pretty much had to create him as a character as well, and so the fact that we can all walk away from the Avengers and just distinctly tell everybody apart, not just visually, but just how they speak, who they are, what they're about. It, to me, it does away with this idea of like homogeny in, in the film's voice as in, with regards to the character, because oh, yeah. yeah, there's, there's definitely humor in the disagreement and the way that they bat against each other. But the way that, that Banner you know, speaks is just miles apart from the way that Tony does. And like, that's just made evident in the, I love their scenes together where they're just being bro scientists and you've got this like friendship blossoming, uh, blossoming here. They're so different, but the way that, and you see it in the way that, you know, uh, Banner's just really got himself guarded up and Tony's just taking those things and he's literally poking at him physically but also verbally and so yeah like the banner has no idea what to do with this like for all his life people react to him like the way black widow does like they pull a gun on him and here is tony just like totally unafraid it's like he doesn't know what to do with that yeah and so i think that's why he gets shaken up more than anybody it's just you know he's volatile in a vol volatile situation where you know he's, he's got black widow 
you know, just reverting back to a training and pulling the gun. You've got Tony who, you know, kind of says to hell with caution and he starts poking at him. And you've got uh, Steve who's just like, I don't care about that. I'm I'm fine with you. And it's just you've got all of these different characters with different personalities and different motivations. And there's just they're so distinct from each other, despite the fact that everybody may say something that makes you laugh from time to time. It's still very much them, you know, Thor laughing and calling us petty and tiny is very specific to Thor. Yeah. And uh, uh, there's so many characters. We just got to kind of go through the characters one at a time. And we might as well start with you know, the a character that's completely unique to this film with Banner as played by Mark Ruffalo. And I like, and you have your issues with it, but I like Edward Norton as, as you know, Bruce Banner a lot. I thought, you know, he brought this like, laser focus intensity like he you felt like he was a scientist and and you know he had this kind of unshakable drive you know to cure himself and this like t- complete and total focus and intensity about his performance and, and you know the, the, and also like a, an unshakable integrity you know he could not let this fall into the government hands and he was going to cure himself and just that, that was all he thought about whereas with with um like he didn't he like there wasn't like he had no time for kind of like self doubt or self loathing whereas when we come with um with uh Mark Ruffalo as Bruce Banner you know he's come to a place where he's realized like there is no cure like that that was a pipe dream and he's you know he has a like a a, a kind of a small lid on the issue he he you know control himself day to day but he is, you know, living in constant fear every second of another incident. And yet, even though he is always terrified and kind of like cringing, hoping it doesn't happen, there's also kind of like a resignation and almost nihilism about it. Like when he meets um, Blackwood, he's like, you know, are you here to kill me, Miss Romanov? Because, you know, that won't work for you. Like he can he is this really nerdy guy who's like constantly wringing his hands. And yet he can, you know, speak to super spies and assassins with total confidence. It's this really bizarre kind of contradiction in his character where he is so awkward and so unassuming and so kind of constantly nervous. And yet when the fight comes, he just kind of gives up into it. Like, you know, it's like, I'm going to warn you, but if you do this and you die, okay. Like you brought this on yourself. And it's, it's really, that sense of kind of resignation that he carries around. He does, he like, he doesn't plead. He doesn't threaten. He'll just tell them. But if it happens, it happens. And it was really interesting. Yeah. And I like that. They don't just completely like right away. The, the events of the incredible Hulk, you know, <laughs> last time I was in New York. I kind of broke Harlem. <laughs> yeah. You got that. And then, you know, even with the, the whole line, like that's my secret kind of hitting it, like the, the level of control that he might've had by the end of that movie. And, so, am I right in saying that I, like Banner is in control if he chooses to become Hulk? Is that is that what the, like they never actually explain what that line means? But like looking at th- through the various films, it's like if he chooses to become Hulk, then he can control it and point to aim it. But if it, um, if it's like thrust upon him, then he's the crazy rage monster. Yeah, I was gonna say I think it, it's more of just like being able to to aim. He can aim the Hulk's intentions if he chooses to beforehand, is I think how it's kind of, I don't know if that's how it's defined here, but that kind of seems to be how it's redefined in Ragnarok, where it's like, I I feel like I've kind of got my hand on the wheel a bit. Um, so it seems like if he gives himself to it, he's 
he's leaving his previous motivations. Whereas if it's just a, if, if it's a crazy situation that just sends him into a panic, then the Hulk is going to be in a panic and just destroy everything. Mm. And I like that he can be kind of playful. You know, Stop lying to me. I'm sorry. That was me. <laughs> and like that, I feel like is one of the defining moments between him and Natasha. We'll get to Natasha later, but I just, the, the way he plays this kind of this self-loathing where he talks about, you know, I, you know, in case you need to kill me, but you can't, I tried. And I put a bullet in my mouth and the other guy spit it out. And he, he just keeps like building and building. And then he realizes he picked up the scepter without even knowing underneath the, the very nerdy performance there. He has that seething rage. That is, you know, that is the Hulk. That is, it's just like barely under the surface, despite you know, him being, you know, a very kind, caring person who, who, who's, who works as a doctor in third world countries. And like, none of that feels out of place. And I think part of the sadness of him is that, you know, there are all of these things that he's able to do, but he's got that constant fear, uh, which again kind of goes back to the events of the Incredible Hulk, that that in reality he's he's just being used for for that. Like uh and that's all not only is he just being used, but that's all people are ever gonna think or see. Uh like whenever he grabs the the scepter and he's like, sorry, because you don't get to see my parlor trick. Like he's just that's how he feels like he's defined by everybody else. And so it's kind of how he defines himself. Uh, it's weird in a movie that is often like so funny and so action packed and so much fun. I think we kind of lose sight of the fact that there really is kind of a, a really somber uh, performance here with him mm-hmm. uh, up until the transformation. He's, he's never really jolly. He's not ever in like a, a good, he's not, he's not play playing with anybody else there's no playful banter he's just constantly got his guard up and i don't know i think it ends up balancing out other characters really well yeah and and let's move on to the the next new quote unquote new character for this film with uh a black widow um and the thing is fury not fury (laughs) we did had to pretty much create this character from scratch like there's there's no character underneath you know the red hair in iron man 2 you know she's fun she's cool and all but i i love so much that she just she isn't just the cliched you know femme fatale kind of femme femme fatale or just the the, your traditional action uh action lady like i think you have what's what's the female character female uh soldier's name in aliens like that like that like oh but uh, she's like he she's a character who you know is nothing but facades and yet even though she's always kind of hiding something and you know, burying her true self down inside and you know, acting to the world and being the being the spy there's like a, there's just a deep vulnerability about her character um and uh, there's an interesting thing that i noticed this this last viewing is that you know the, the one character that kind of gets the short shrift is barton you know hawkeye and the, the, yeah it makes sense you know hawkeye hawkeye's thing is that he is the straight man he's the normal guy in this world of you know he he's just a soldier he comes in he does his job he goes home to his wife and kids and he doesn't he like he he's the guy who doesn't have any drama he doesn't bring any drama and he doesn't really put up with any drama and so to, to, you know, it makes sense to use him in, you know, instead of like you know giving us drama with with barton we use barton to help you know get a, a glimpse into uh into Black Widow, just um, you know that line. You know, Barton's been compromised, and th- that says so much about Natasha and 
you know, using her connection, you know, to, to, as you know, connection with him, which which kind of happened off off screen, you know, to bring us into her character right right at the start. And I love that it, we don't just get like a, like five separate scenes of where a fury or a nameless shield agent going to each character. Like there's actually like he's actually kind of folding them on top of each other where, you know, through the introduction of Barton, we get to Black Widow and sending Black Widow off after Banner. Like all of that is just it's just like this this pure, seamless kind of setup and setups in the storytelling right at the start. Like it, it just it never feels like, oh, we're just getting this is an introduction scene because we have to have one. It just the storytelling and, and, and pacing in the in the first act is so seamless. Yeah, it really does move super, super well where it, it doesn't you well, I mean you literally you couldn't rearrange any of the scenes because they are built where one scene is built off of the momentum of the previous one. Uh and even like with Thor, you know, you fold him right into the plot there instead of a uh, Yeah, just he's another, after Loki. Like, yeah and so yeah he, he kind of comes after the 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 inciting incident and the plot and everything but what i like about that is that through these opening scenes it kind of creates momentum for the movie and it never really lets up and one of the things i find so pr- impressive about the movie is how little action there is and yet how forward moving it always feels this is the transitions like just the line from cap you know is there anything you want to tell us about the tesseract you should have left it at the bottom of the ocean and we cut to Stark at the bottom of the ocean. It's like, yeah, and it 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 does feel like every, like the ending of every scene is like passing the baton on to the next one in a kind of an organic way. It kind of reminds me a little bit of a uh, of the way Abrams does, where you know we're on the helicarrier, we've we've got a general like we've got an idea of where we're going, but we've got a lot of downtime in between. And with a lot of other movies, that downtime feels like downtime. Uh, but here, it it does like the the arguments on the helicarrier or on the Quinjet feel Army just as exciting it. as as the Battle of New York, you know, with with Cap finding out they're using it to make Hydra weapons with uh, <laughs> the great line. Excuse me, what were you lying? Whenever <laughs> Tony discovers uh, uh, Phase Two and everything, and so even in these like physical transitional periods between getting from okay, we need the team here and we need the team here. We've got this downtime between there. We don't just say, okay, they're here, cut to a scene. Like, all right, we've landed. We're constantly doing something. Uh, we're constantly learning more about the characters, learning more about S.H.I.E.L.D., learning more about this person's dynamic to this person. Because in addition to just having to create these personalities, we're also having having to create the their specific relationship with each other, the way they they interact with each other, the way Tony interacts with Steve is very different from how he interacts with Banner and Fury and this and that. And so the movie's always doing something. And because it's always doing something and is very intentional about doing something, we can stand around literally in a circle and argue for 10 minutes and not feel like the the film slowed down in any way. Because each character is spilling their cuts in that moment. Like the argument is happening like 10 different ways and each character is, is, you know, revealing who they are, you know, also kind of revealing their dark sides and, because of the influence of the scepter, which I, I, that scene is so brilliant. The way the camera is just like, like drifting lazily around at Dutch angles and spinning upside down and then ending on the scepter. It's like, it's beautifully directed. Yeah. And it's weird. Like you don't notice what all is going on until you rewatch. Like you can actually like, you can see the movement from banner, like back towards grabbing it. You don't actually see the hand on it, but you can tell that that's what he's doing. And it's just, you're so caught up in the heat of the moment and the drama and everything. It's, 
it's really really entertaining to watch and and you feel like you're you're literally just caught in the middle of all of these giant egos battling each other this film was way more complex than it needed to be like there did not there didn't have to be anything shady about shield for this movie to work like shield could be a totally benevolent organization but i love that there is that element where you know fury fury is a shady dude and let's just let's talk about Nick Fury. <laughs> let's just go there. Um, Sam Jackson is amazing. Like, and I, I was watching an interview with Josh Sweet. He talked about where he one of the his big inspirations for how to how to write Nick Fury was Unbreakable. And he said my biggest no term during filming was less shaft, more glass, which I love. Ironic now. Yeah, I absolutely love that. But um, just the. The the presence that Sam Jackson carries, you know, until such time as the world ends, we will act as if it intends to spin on. Like, just he's so freaking badass. Like, he just takes a bullet and then goes, jumps into a helicopter, and, you know, and he's like shooting out, shooting at the car with a pistol out of that helicopter. It's just, he's amazing. One of the things that I really love about him is that he is able to completely embody the man with the plan, the head figure, the guy who knows it all while still being vulnerable and desperate. Like, I mean, he, he explicitly says it, like, you have made me very desperate. And so he's the guy that you rely on to put the plan together, who knows what's going on, who knows where the pieces are. But the audience and the characters aren't able to completely rest in that. Like, we know there's a plan. We know the most qualified guy is getting things together. But there's still a sense but of... But he's unease. also lying to us every step of the way. Exactly. And so it's like... But it, not in a way where it's like, okay, so now we can't trust this guy at all. Maybe he's even the villain. It's like you are having to put your faith in a character who's not entirely trustworthy, and yet that's still the best decision to do. Like it's still in your best interest to trust that this guy kind of knows what he's doing. Yeah, that's the whole phase two thing where you know Tony is like t- terrified of authority and hates it, so you know, he hides the fact that you know he's making weapons and. You know, Tony freaks out about that. Like, I, like that entire conversation, he's like lying, only revealing as much as he has to. Like, you know, oh, we, of course we gathered up all the shield weapons. Oh yeah, and we're building nuclear bombs. <laughs> like, so what? Or like, because you know, and also I love the way he was, you know, because of him. You, know, you brought a, a grudge match that loved a small town. We needed a response. Like, it all makes sense, but like just the levels of lies and and what he does with um, you know, he literally goes and like gets the playing cards out of uh out of colson's locker like rubs him in his in his blood to lie and you know to lie again to the avengers to hopefully you know get them pissed off enough to go and fight again this this dude like he's he's crazy he's crazy but he's awesome yeah but and then you know going towards the end where i i just love that he doesn't listen to a single thing the council tells him but he's so good at his job that they have to keep him you know I'm aware the council's made a decision, but given that it's a stupid-ass decision, I've elected to ignore it. Might be one of my favorite lines ever from the whole series. Yeah. And like, you know, he says, like, yo, I'm not currently tracking their whereabouts. Like, oh, yeah, he, to- he is totally tracking every one of their whereabouts, <laughs> but he's keeping it to himself because he's the smartest man in the world, and the only he knows what's best. Like, you know, he's, he's kind of a Tony Stark in that way, actually. But maybe a bit more qualified in this instance. <laughs> it, is, it is so weird, like, seeing Tony Stark... Like, you know, having lived so long with, you know, with Civil War and post-Civil War Tony, seeing Tony at this stage where he is so 
paranoid about authority and you know i'm yeah we are not soldiers like where he's just you know he wants to be this lone gunman and And he's so carefree and loose with the way he carries himself and the change just happens so gradually it's just it's perfect character development across the series yeah yeah (laughs) since we're at tony um yeah i i love the way that cap is able to instantly stab him in his soul um where Tony's whole thing is, you know, he he is the one who create you know created his own demons. Like, he's the one who's you know that's the, that's the open that's that's the opening line of uh, Iron Man three, isn't it? You know, we create our own demons. I didn't even realize that. But yeah, like uh, he's he's constantly creating his own problems, so that he's he's full of self doubt and constantly like, torturing himself. You know, he does he doesn't he doesn't know if he's a hero. And like when you know Cap comes to him, he says, like, "I've seen the footage. The only thing you really fight for is yourself." You're not the guy to make the sacrifice play, to lay down the wire and let the other guy crawl over you. You know, always a way out. You know, you might not be a threat, but you you better stop pretending to be a hero. And every one of those words is something that he has been fighting with himself over the last, you know, however many years since he's become Iron Man. And, you know, like that's that's the beautiful thing about this character is that, you know, he, he is a hero. He is the guy who's going to carry the nuke out of the wormhole and maybe die. But he also has that, you know, that constant just neuroticism about and you know and self-doubt you know the worry that he's not good enough and you just see in his eyes as cap says that and then he just like lets lose you know everything special that you came from a bottle like there's that that's not a tony quip that is him trying to kill tony with word trying to kill steve with words you know the guy that just like bared his soul in that way like it's acting it's so good so much acting And that line is kind of like what what I was talking about of, of what I would have liked Red Skull to have presented in Captain uh, yeah in the, the first Avenger yeah where it's just presenting Steve with the challenge of like are you as great like are you really the poster boy for morality and righteousness or do you just like rest on on this strength that was given to you that you weren't earned or that that you didn't earn yourself and so you know maybe it is all is all he is like just like nice sentiments kind of wrapped up in a, in a muscle bound body. Yeah. Um, I love that both of them, you know, attack the other guy's fears, but both of them are also wrong. And like, you see like they're both saying the things they wouldn't normally have said to each other. I just love how insecure cap, you know, this paragon of virtue makes the guy, who, who who's, whose whole persona is being the arrogant playboy kind of thing, and and just how offensive it would be to to especially to a guy coming from the 1940s meeting the man who is Tony Stark. It's like it's a very much a culture shock. And the whole like we are not soldiers thing is, is really interesting. Uh, I guess like the entire movie, he is trying to. You know, to figure out what it really means to be a hero. He's, he's talking about cults, you know, he's an idiot. He should have waited. And it's like, you know, sometimes there's an option. Yeah, great. I heard that before. But like when it, when, you know, I'm, I'm not marching to Fury's five. Like he doesn't, he like the whole time he's like trying to find a way around being here. And yet when the moment comes, it, he's the one who's always going, he's, you know, he's going to sacrifice life. He's going to carry that thing through. And I love, you know, the, the, the beautiful symmetry with where he ends up in Endgame. Mm. Um, with with the finale of this um, of this movie, where he does, you know, the the whole the whole of you know Iron Man wanting to is him like you know questioning himself and, te- and you know constantly being insecure about that, 
and you know here having that final confirmation that he is indeed he is indeed the hero it's good good stuff this reading guy knows what he's about <laughs> i love the line but this loki he's a full tilt diva he wants flowers he wants parades he wants a monument built to the skies with his name plastered son of a bitch <laughs> Uh, him and Loki are so good together. I, I like that Loki actually enjoys bantering with him. Like when they finally beat the end where Loki's actually, Loki's actually kind of enjoying himself and, and not like just going for the jugular the way he did say with, um, with a uh, widow. Yeah, I, I think he's both like enjoying himself while at the same time being frustrated. Like, oh yeah. Cause, cause Stark is able to jab is also you know, jabbing him wherever it hurts as well. Yeah, exactly. Like he, he presents himself as like, you should be bowing before me. And he's like, you know, I have an army. We have a Hulk. Like nothing he can say can really impress or, or sway this guy. And so he's like, not a great plan. <laughs> so like, there's a level of like excitement at being able to like verbally spark. Cause like Thor was never the guy that he's going to be able to do that with. <laughs> but it's also like this frustrating feeling of, his whole he's got this god complex this entitlement to the throne and everything and and the fact that he keeps being defied like in germany by the old man and out here by tony like he's here burdened with glorious purpose as he says uh and yet he's being met with this resistance with these giant egos that are refusing to bow down to him and he's also you know incredibly insecure as well I'll just like right from the start, you know, Loki, brother of Thor, and just the look he gives Selvig, like he, he, even on Earth among these stupid mortals, he can't he can't escape out of the shadow of Thor's greatness. And I, I just love that you know, the whole thing is you know, at, you know, his father told him, you know, but not only one of you can ascend to the throne, but both of you were born to be kings. Like his entire life, you know, this is my birthright. This is my this is who I am, and he's kind of like he's trying to prove that to himself as well. Um. You know, I just that that conversation on the cliff top between him and Thor is so good. You know, like your father, where he's just like he's just this pathetic little brother who just wants to try and prove himself by being evil. Um, and I just the scene where he in Germany where he's over the crowd, he just like he just relishes in causing terror, and the, the scene between him and Black Widow is like one of the greatest bits of writing and acting in the entire MCU where he, he like plays the confidant to her to get her to share, you know, whatever you know, to share a bit. And then instantly as a table, as soon as the conversation turns, he just throws every bit of personal information that she gave him like right back at her to try just, just, just to hurt her. No real reason. He doesn't have to do this, but he just enjoys, you know, causing the pain, the mischief of, you know, of being of being the confidant and gaining trust, and then just sticking her, you know, like trying to just like stab stab the truth into her like a knife, where you know he already knew everything she told him, but like he 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 had her say it just just to bring down her guard, and then he just you know, Dracoff's daughter, the school, you know, whatever, all of that, all of the, all the things that Barton told him, you know, it's not, your ledger isn't just dripping, it's gushing red. And he just like, just goes off. And there's like, there's a viciousness, but it, it's, it, it's a playful viciousness about it, which, which makes it all the scarier. It's kind of like the same, like, uh, you know, maybe I'll pay her a visit at the end of Thor, where it's like, at this point, it's, 
it's a no holds bar. I'm going to say whatever I can say to just make you weep. Like I'm going to try to break you down verbally. Yeah. And then, and then when you cry, I'll just laugh. And like, oh, because that was, <laughs> wasn't that that was a little, yeah, it's kind of a, a little playful bit for me there. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. And I just, I love the lying over to you. Know, you lie and kill on the surface of killers. Um, and then it, you, it cuts to like a star khaki into the hydro and cat finding the hydro weapons. Like great, you know, great, uh, Great dramatic editing. You, know, you pretend to be separate to have your own code, to, something to make up for the horrors, but they are part of you, and they would never, they will never go away. And again, he—it's just like with Cavan Tony. He gets her, and well, he gets her, and he doesn't. Like he—he doesn't—he never actually had her. I had it just, which makes Black Black Widow's character all the more awesome. But like, it's—it's it's all like he's just getting into each one of their fears and. I love that you know, she had that whole scene and uh, she was play. Uh, he was playing her, but she was also playing him playing her. And the whole thing was a bid to, you know, to get his plan. I love that you, you're a monster. You brought the monster. She's just like straight up. Oh, so that's your plan. Oh, it's, it's so great. And yet we see later on that she was indeed, she was kind of traumatized by that. Cause she goes and yeah, it goes to, um, to Hawkeye, uh, to the Hawkeye, you know, I've got red in my ledger. I'd like to wipe it out. She, you know, she isn't the hero type. And he says, what are you, you're a spy. You're not a soldier. What are you doing waiting, waiting into a war? But, you know, this thing, you know, th- being confronted with all the horrors and the, the evil that she was at one time, you know, this is this her waiting into the Battle of New York is kind of, you know, a desperate bid for redemption. Yeah, I really like her conversation with Hawkeye and that it it doesn't make that scene just a, a, a double sided scene of manipulation which would have been perfect if it was and yet it's better i guess just to to kind of round out the uh the avengers with with thor uh i think he might be given hey this cap too oh that's right how have we not well i guess we just talked about that argument so much i forget that we haven't even really talked about cap <laughs> uh well to talk about thor before we talk about cap uh i feel like he has the less dramatic stuff going on which i think would have it it was kind of undermined by the fact that it's just like oh how much black magic did father have to conjure to get you it's like oh okay it's just we did that and we're fine we're back and it's all good i think if we were reintroduced to him with the with the information that we don't know how he's going to get back yet I think you would have found ways to mind drama out of that a lot more than just a, a throwaway line that says he's back now and it's okay and don't worry about it and he's here to get Loki. Yeah, I, I've I've heard that Whedon, like that Thor is probably his least favorite character. That makes sense. I think he does a great job with him here. Like the the the, the scenes between him and Loki are really powerful, or at least his his side is powerful. Um, where he's like he. This is his brother, and he still doesn't fully understand what went wrong with Loki. Like he's like, you know, come home, give up this pointless dream. But he's like pleading with him, like, you know, he has his hand around his neck in that really manly, loving way. Um, it's just, it's so like he has. And like the thing, the thing about Thor, I think the reason the character is so difficult is that I, I have a theory of the character. A character like Thor, when he changes, he just changed. Like we saw in the first Thor where he realized he was a terrible person and he became a better person. Like it's just like he there's there's no agonizing. There's no self-doubt. He's not Tony who is who is nothing but agony and self-doubt. He's just like 
any change, any personal change he realizes he needs, he implements and he's done. And so there's this, there's, there's, it's very difficult to have drama with a character like that. And I'm afraid that might be the case with uh, Doctor Strange as well. We haven't yet seen a second chapter, but I'm, I'm, I have a feeling they're going to struggle giving Strange another arc. But like, like, so like finding new arcs for a character who has this perfect confidence about him is really difficult. And I think they, they do the, he does the best he can. I think he's, his bits here are really solid, you know, mostly playing off the sorrow of what his brother has become. Um, so it's still like, you know, you think yourself above them. Did you miss the truth of ruling brother? A throne would suit you ill. Like just seeing how far he's grown was really cool. Just the, yeah. the, the really soulful come home. Um, yeah, he, he probably gets the least of any of them. I think a way to fix that, because I, I think I think characters, even characters like that, still have potential for for more drama. I think one of the things that they could have done um, is you know he's he's not insecure in the way Tony is. You know he's he's more along the lines of of Cap, where he's like he sees the good, he sees the bad, he's the he's the moral right, he's learned his lesson. But Cap's kind of always been that way, and uh, I don't. I would have liked to have seen. Thor struggle with the consequence of accepting that responsibility. Like, this is who I am now, but this is what I'm going to have to deal with in a way that I haven't before. Like, choosing choosing duty and righteousness over over self would be a new concept. So if maybe if they had, if you had the idea of like, well, I don't know how I'm getting back to Asgard. If he was having to try to right the wrongs of his brother while also grappling with the, the fact that like, Meant before I would have just left, but I've accepted it. Like I've found this. There's this newfound responsibility that I have, and it's what's driving driving me here. Uh, I don't know. I, I think there's still ways they could have had him had him wrestle with the the idea of accepting the right thing as the only option, as opposed to you know like I don't know what he might have done prior. Mm-hmm. And I do like that that Whedon's able to keep maintain that level, that kind of aloofness. You know, he he's a god, and he, you know he's has much more respect for mortals than he did before. But he still he still kind of holds himself separate. Like he he like he does kind of like look at their affairs and like they they're so much lesser than him. And I, even this, but there's even a bit of self awareness in that where he when he's talking with uh Coulson. Colson, you know, we, we come here battling like Bilge Snipe, you know, talking about, where he's aware of their own arrogance, but he's also kind of participating in it as in uh, in the same moment. Yeah, so uh, circling around to Cap, um, as I as I mentioned in the in the, uh, the first adventure review, uh, this this was my introduction to um to uh, Captain America in in the MCU. I remember the, the, the honest trailer, like when, when they when they do the star where they go to Captain Nobody's favorite. Like, hey, he was my favorite. Um, I really love the character here. Just the um, the the whole tragedy about him, I think, is great. And the way they the way Whedon gives us his entire backstory as he's punching the bag is just brilliant. Like, despite never having seen that, you know, the um, the first Avenger, I instantly, you know, got you know what where you know where he came from and what he was. Um, and just the whole, the man out of time, you know, it's not explored as much here as it is in later films, but even then it's just the, the kind of discomfort that he carries around with him. He, he's, a, he's a character who needs a sense of purpose. Like as soon as he kind of, whenever he has a job to do, you know, he, he becomes very sure, but 
I'll, but the other times where he's just kind of wandering around the halls of the uh, the helicarry, he just he just kind of feel looks and feels lost. Which this isn't his world, and he's a soldier, and he, he's faced with someone like Tony who's constantly mocking him. And I don't know, I just I just love the way he plays that. Yeah, it's it's because he he was my favorite character as well. Um, I like that he's so different from everybody else, and that. You know, even Thor, who is, you know, this fellow noble, responsible, noble, responsible leader. But the Cap's always been this way. He's from a different time. He's just he's having to try to stand firm in a world that's moved on. And like you said, you know, we, we get to that a lot more with with Winter Soldier. Yep. And he he doesn't like even that. know what standing firm looks like. Stand firm for what? Exactly. Like, I like that we're that he's still finding his footing at the start of this movie. And I think despite all of the unease surrounding S.H.I.E.L.D. and everything, I think there's also a side of him that's really happy about this. You know, like we get to like, actually, this is the first thing that uh, that's familiar. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's found structure again, you know, uh, a, a group, fellow soldiers and this and that. And I think, I think the fact that he has, that there's some comfort he finds in it is proved by his annoyance with with Tony, where it's like like Cap looks around and sees sees something that makes sense, sees roles that need to be filled, and Tony is the guy who is just like dancing around the role but refuses to fall in line, and so he he's the member of the team that's not letting Cap let things flow the way that they should, and so again it's like this movie takes what's so central to all of these characters. And he finds a way to to put them all into one situation into which this it's this one singular idea has different consequences for everybody else. You know, Tony needs the structure to play out because it gives him focus. It gives him meaning in this new world that he's not you a mean part Steve? of. Steve. Oh yeah, sorry, Steve. And then and Tony is the the lone wolf. He's the guy who's just now who's still in the process of figuring himself out and is not ready to be thrown into something else like this. And and you. Know- uh, Romanov, you know, th- this is her shot at redemption. But even as, um, as Loki points out, you you lie and kill for liars and killers. Like, ha- have you changed at all? Yeah, it, it's so the the idea of forcing them to come together over this. It's like it's just it's on paper. It's just, can be summarized in a sentence, but it means something different for everybody else. Going to Banner, um, you know, the whole thing, the whole time he's like, I don't like. I don't want to become the Hulk. And I was like, you don't have to become the Hulk. And yet, like, it's it's like an inevitability where he eventually, he has to accept that, you know, this is what I am and I, I can use it for good. I can't just keep running forever. Yeah. And so what this means to these different people changes upon the people there, you know, like this could have been great for Steve initially if Tony weren't there. And, and Tony might have been able to find a way to jive if he weren't having to do so with the Boy Scout next to him. And I don't. I think the the presence of of Steve here is really necessary. And despite the fact that it isn't explored uh, in super super deep ways here, I still I find it an interesting concept. And I think it's played with just enough, given that this is also an ensemble with you know an ensemble action epic. And it all has the perfect resolution with those two words. Call it cap. Yeah. We're- Tony accepts that he's a soldier and he, you know, the guy, the guy who can't be a team player realizes that the, you know, this soldier and strategist is a lot more suited than this to me. It's, 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 it's again, it's perfect. 
And just like circling back around to Joss Whedon, um, you know, on, on top of you, know, he's known for his writing, but I think he, this dude is a really good director as well. Um, the first two acts, they do kind of look a bit TV-ish from time to time. Just like the, the, that's just a, a a function of having full screen, you know, aspect ratio. We're just like it 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 looks kind of cheaper. But that that said, like even though the visuals do look a little odd sometimes like his actual visual direction is pretty impeccable like just the way the camera moves and the staging um there's a quote from a Seamus McGarvey where he said Joss and I were very keen on having a very visceral and naturalistic quality to the image we wanted this to feel immersive and did not want a comic book look that might hurt an audience's engagement with the film we moved the camera a lot on steadicam cranes and dollies to create kinetic images and like just the the camera is really always moving like he's always finding really interesting angles uh to shoot the the film from like there's a, there's a lot of dutch angles in this movie as well but used a bit more appropriately than they were in thor <laughs> they um, were used perfectly in thor and i don't even like dutch angles so that's how perfect <laughs> well they were they were perfectly even if they weren't appropriate <laughs> Um, but like, so the, 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 uh, so the, the image is constantly moving and like, he's always just finding really creative angles and just like you play, playing with the depth of field. It's, it's just a, it's a very engaging movie to watch. And the, and the, the camera, you know, along with the dialogue and the staging is just always telling the story at every moment. It's like, it's never boring to look at. Yeah. There's plenty of like really cool moments of despite the fact that you've got all of these talkative characters as you say like kind of spilling their guts to each other there's still some really good visual storytelling where like we've got the the bloody cards thrown on the table and we're looking up through like from underneath the table at the blood-soaked card at steve's face of guilt and it's like this was the fan you know this the the blood is there right in front of you and you're gonna let it go to waste and and you've got you still have fury monologuing but the environment still kind of helping tell the story and and also just how lively the camera is sometimes and then during that moment it's just slowly moving side to side kind of helping evoke the emotion of the scene um and when we get to the action in the third act i get the choice to to go 1.85 because here whenever whenever you've got these skyline shots and these leviathan space worms floating into frame it just looks incredible yeah this guy is a world-class action director like there are a couple times like in the hand-to-hand stuff where it might be a little too quick cut shaky cam but when it when it goes big like and, and it's not because like he's particularly stylish with the action but there is a sense of clarity and uh, about the image like every action scene there is never a single second of doubt about what is happening like where people are where they are going and we're dealing with again with very very incredibly complex action scenes with like all these moving parts and characters like on multiple levels which which, you know why he chose this incredibly uh um you know full full uh, aspect ratio but just like all throughout, whenever there's an action sequence, whether it's you know the the uh, the attack on the helicarrier or the entire battle in New York, there is just such a sense of clarity, but also creativity. Like the ways, the amount of different cool moments and action beats that are in this film. Like I don't know how do you even how do you think of of all of them? Like that the entire battle of New York is just filled with one incredibly creative 
you know, use of a, of a character's skill after another. And it goes on for like 40 minutes. It's, it's just amazing. Another thing that just nails with that is just a, there's a sense of geography in this that he really pays attention to. Like even with, you know, Cap mm. calling it, you know, calling out orders on where to contain it and this and that. It's kind of crazy that it isn't just a, a montage of different cool events that could be ordered in, a, in any one way. Like there's movement. You've got that amazing one shot where we're just following Iron Man throughout all of the different uh, scenes of chaos. And we're moving from Cap and he's deflecting it off the shield. And then Hawkeye up on top of the arrow, which goes over to Loki, which does this. And it's just we're constantly moving around and we've always got a pretty good idea of where things are headed. And why the battle makes sense. Like, we get why it doesn't just spread instantly. We got Thor, can, like, bottling it. It's just, it all moves in, what, like, it's like clockwork. It's just, this happens, so this happens, then this happens. And, and the thing is, you know, we, we, you have that one awesome wonder. But we're also getting many versions of that with almost every transition where he'll just, you know, show a character fighting. And then we'll pan you know, and the action will move to the next character, so, uh, you know, which is, you know, part of that, you know, maintaining geography. But like on top, like all of that would have been fine and good. But the the, the thing is, like, the fight is also incredibly energetic. Like it, it's it's a like a forty minute action sequence, but it's never tiring until the end, where it's supposed to be exhausting. And we're supposed to you know, feel the characters exhausted. But like it's like it's always moving and it's fun. Like. We've seen hundreds, you know, maybe even thousands of action sequences, you know, as film goers, and and plenty of these gigantic superhero brawls. But this one is truly special. So the Battle of New York is it should be up there with like Helm's Deep when we're talking just like great cinematic action sequences. Yeah, and it's that's the thing. Another thing that uh, you mentioned, like the fact that it's able to avoid fatigue, is so cool. And uh, I think one of the the reasons is because we are we are still so character centric during the fight, and in addition to just like growing arcs, it's like you really get to see for the first time a team unit, like you know, like got anything on him, like well they can't break, uh, they can't bank with a damn, and so he does that, and he we're we're constantly seeing them in action, you know, punch up Legolas. Ever <laughs> they're working together, they're doing things, and so either oh they're. God. Black Widow calling Hawkeye to shoot at Loki, so you know when he's on her tail. Yeah, and so like they're they're working together, so we're we're continuing arcs, we're getting new like new ways to see them interact to, to, with each other, and that's on top of something that already would have been cool for an extended period of time. And so it's just you're able to go full epic with the third act, and you've got so many like toys to play with, so many different things to to do with it that you can have it play out over the entirety of the third act and it's just entertaining start to finish yeah and and it's allowed to be fun which it could have like he does a great job of like portraying the kind of terror you would feel in the streets like the, the kind of the handheld shaky cam that's happening when the attack first happens and we're like on the street running with civilians and cars are exploding but also but he's able to have that while also just being really fun and funny you and I remember Budapest very differently. <laughs> Why the hell should I take orders from you? <laughs> that, that that interaction is so perfect and brilliant. Uh, between Cap and the cop. And then he just turns around and like, says the, you know, the exact same line verbatim. And the thing is, it's like... That kind of joke has been used before, but like when you're hearing it from Cap and you're seeing it in modern day New York with aliens around, it's just... It's awesome again. 
Because it's funny, like there's a quote from Whedon where he says like, I'm the guy who's always going to make the cheap joke. It's like if you can craft a scenario where it feels fresh, then you do it. And it's it's awesome. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the Avengers shot. It's ne- I never I will never you know not get goosebumps, you know, with the camera spinning around them and the Avengers theme as the aliens send up their war cry and I just, how many times can I say perfect for uh, someone turns off the podcast, James? I don't know, but we'll test it, especially when we get into star ratings. Yeah, <laughs> speaking of funny moments, uh, Loki and Hulk. That's it. Yeah. You are all of you beneath me. I am a god, you dull creature. Oh, so great. We've actually been quoting this film a lot less than I thought we would. Uh, should we just spend the next half hour quoting the film? I'll just pull up the screenplay and like read half of it. And one little thing I noticed in here is that, uh, despite what a lot of people like to say, the uh, the Banner and Black Widow romance was definitely foreshadowed here. They've definitely got a thing for each other in this movie. Um, which is weird because like so much of it is just is like uh, uh, you know, built around like abject terror. I do love how terrified of the Hulk Black Widow is. That ch- the initial chasing, well, one the the helicarrier scene in, in its entirety is like amazing. But just just the scene where she pulls the gun on him in the in the in the shack. Yeah. You know, this is monsters and magic and nothing we're ever trained for. Like, like she can't fight. There's there's nothing she can do. Like just the way he hits her and she just flies across the room like a rag doll. And they're able to sell you the terror. You know, it's not just all talk. You know, because we spend so much time worrying about the Hulk. And his introduction here is amazing. I love that he's like, uh, I swear on my life, and he just said like your life. That moment like kind of freaked me out in the theater initially. And in the slow-mo chase through the narrow, narrow corridor, he feels dangerous. He feels like this rampaging wrecking ball. And so it's kind of like they they put their money where their mouth is, and they're like, okay, no, there's a reason. Like, this Hulk is even wilder than we've seen before. And yeah, it's really, really cool. And I, I love that you know, for the first half of the film, she like doesn't know what to make of him entirely. And you know, it, uh, we, we hear that line from, you know, Age of Ultraman, you know, this guy I know who spends, his, you know, I'm surrounded by guys, you know, soldiers and whatnot. And then there's this guy who spends his entire life running from the away from the fight, not because he's afraid to lose, but because he knows he'll win. It's like she, you, there's there's definitely a connection between the two. Like, and I see where she's you know, like, I swear on my life, and you're trying to talk him down. It's almost as if, like, she feels responsible. You know, she brought him in, back into this mess. And you know, she, it, you know, it was her, it was her promise and her word, you know, that we're not gonna, you know, use the Hulk. And now there he is hulking out, and it, like I think she kind of feels that it's on her. And then you know that, that that final moment, you know, at the Battle of New York, you know, where she, you know, this, uh, where she says, uh, "No, I've seen worse." It's like, oh yeah, sorry, like you know, no, we could use a little worse. But like she's come, kind of, like I, there's definitely a connection. Like I feel like that romance that goes forward in Age of Ultron actually feels really natural if you. You know, watch their interactions here. We'll see if it uh, if it works better now in Age of Ultron. We shall. And I, I do kind of talk about how the, the effects in this movie they like, they really do hold up. Like there's like that water you can kind of tell Cap is CGI when he does that jump weird flippy kick thing, but overall watching this battle, there really aren't any moments where I'm thinking like, oh, that's CGI. And Hulk looks phenomenal. which is crazy. Even still. oh, Hulk is amazing. I think this is still like. This kind of bent over, almost ape-like version of Hulk is probably still my favorite version. He's a freaking gorilla. Yeah, 
just him climbing yeah, up the like, walls, the giant like the biceps, like giant football or basketballs. Or he's just he's this enormous enormous hulking mass, and, and there's he feels very animalistic. And I, yeah, I think this is still the the coolest version of him to me. And I think I know one one of the things that really sells the action. This is something that J.J. Abrams does is that Joss Whedon doesn't try to capture all everything happening within the camera, like. The camera is like struggling to capture everything in that frame. Where like when Hulk is jumping around, he's like constantly you know, like filling up the entire frame or like you know slipping out of it for half a second. Like I feel like w- when you try and have these CGI cameras where everything, all the action is happening within frame with this perfect smooth motion, we that, then we can kind of see the CGI seams. But when you actually like mimic real camera work, like he does throughout this entire battle, except for a couple of those like you know that one other thing. You it like it, 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 it tricks us into accepting the CGI. It's, it's kind of the thing, it's the thing Gareth Edwards does, and I, I noticed kind of some of that kind of Gareth Edwards use of style, especially with those space whales. Like a lot of shots, like from the ground, like looking up the sides of buildings as things are happening. Like not just we doesn't get enough praise just as a visual director. Man, I wish things didn't go south with Age of Ultron in the Fallout. I would love to have him back in the MCU. Yeah, I just want him making movies again. That aren't just that aren't just. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> not going there. Um, and I, I guess we probably should uh, talk about Coulson, just this pure perfect man that the world didn't deserve. <laughs> I, just, I, love, I love like little touches like uh, Pepper having this kind of friendship on the side with Coulson. Just like it's like it's like totally real, but we know that you know she met him in in Iron Man and Iron Man Two. Like you know, oh, what happened to that cellist? Oh, she moved back to Portland. What? <laughs> Boo! Like, I just, love that so much. Yeah, it's just like these again. This the the illusion of real life where these people have relationships, and also I love that Tony hates it. <laughs> you know, his first name is Agent. Uh, so good. You know, we're celebrating, which is why he can't stay. <laughs> then leave it urgently. <laughs> yeah, I. I get that they needed to avenge something, but I hate watching him die so much. And I also usually hate bringing characters back from the dead, but I love getting a show of him. And uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is actually pretty fun. People should check it out. I, I need to watch it. I haven't seen any of it. Uh, and I love that he doesn't, you know, even though he's fooled, he doesn't go out like a punk. You know, he's the one who gets to you know, have that, you know, you know, you'll lose because you lack conviction. And then he gets the shot off. Um, but still, the whole like just helping design caps who the fanboy moments are so adorable. Yeah, they're vintage. He's very proud. And I, you know, it's such a it's such a funny extra layer to his character because he's always he's been he's the in control guy before. He's like, I will tase you and watch Super Nanny while you drool on the floor. Like, no, I don't care about any of these people. It is just a job. Oh my gosh, it's Captain America! Like, just the way he turns for <laughs> like Iron Man. Who the freak cares? You know. And then Cap shows up and it's like, this is the greatest day of my life. And he's like a, an excited schoolboy again. Ah, it's so mm. great. And I don't care why people say that. I like Cap suit in this movie. Yeah, I guess a lot. It's not my very favorite, but I, it's not, la- the way that it's become a joke is, I don't know, disappointing to me. It's an insult to Coulson who, who put his heart into it. Dang it. Yeah, we might need, we might need a little bit of old fashioned these days. That's all that. That's all I got to say about yeah. that. <laughs> I guess we, we might want to talk about Hawkeye a little bit. We, we kind of mentioned before, but you know, he doesn't get a lot. But I, I, I like Jeremy, Jeremy Renner a lot. He's he's like perfectly made for like snarky quips. You know, he's he's brainwashed the whole time. But dude, just a bow and arrow is cool. I don't care what, what anyone says. 
he ma- he makes it look really awesome in that final battle, <laughs> just like shooting without even looking or, uh, really like stab a guy with the arrow and just use the arrow to shoot someone else. Uh, like Legolas hasn't got nothing. On whoa, him. whoa! <laughs> I don't know about that. Maybe not. But well, Legolas doesn't have bombs on his arrows, does he? That's true. Like shooting the arrow at Loki, Loki catches it. And explodes. Such a great shot too. Uh, yeah, I really love him too, and I think honestly, rewatching it, I kind of get why you take him out. Uh, even beyond the things we mentioned before, where like he probably would have been it. Well, I, we know he would have been able to help dissolve the situation a little bit, just because he's the guy who's there for uh, for Scarlet Witch in Age of Ultron. Like he's the guy who has his head on his shoulders, a solid bead on the group on what's going on. It's like, oh, aliens, huh? Let me get my bow and arrow. Yeah, like. He's the guy who's going to speak sense into a situation. And so when you, and I also don't think like, despite the fact that he can quip along with everybody else and he can hold his own, I don't think his ego is that big. Like all he wants to do is, you know, punch his badge in, clock in and then clock out and go back home to the wife and kids. Like he doesn't, he doesn't care about perception half as much, you know, even from the beginning, he's the guy he's standing, he's up in the rafters looking down on everything. Like, cause he just, he doesn't care about, about that he just wants to see what's what's going on and he'll get out of there so i think by removing him you remove the character who could help calm things down and then when you put him back in he's there to help kind of pick up the pieces with with black widow you know he's he sees her hurt and he's able to console her and you know get back into the action with her and so you kind of see his even with limited screen time you're able to see his importance as a character just by what he's able to accomplish when he gets back the amount of history they're able to imply between those two characters just like the way they sit next to each other on the bed yeah like there's like and he instantly sees like when he knows that black widow isn't right he knows like he he can spot you know when she's lying when she's trying to you know fake something or whatever yeah it's because you always see the facade with her and then yeah, it, just the simple image of them sitting together, it like evokes. Oh, it's like a just a brother and sister with an intimate moment, like her, like being like, "Yeah, this is what's going on." And, yeah, we don't really see her that way with anybody else. <laughs> I just love that you're captain. It will be my genuine <laughs> pleasure. <laughs> One soldier to another, they yeah. get each other. Um, I do gotta do have to briefly mention the, the German dude, <laughs> the old German dude. Not men like you. Yeah, that that, that scene is so perfect. Like, and that act like. He, just the way he does it, you know, there are always men like you. And having Cap, you know, come in and save a guy, you know, save the guy in Germany, it's it's all just so great. That, just real quick, that whole scene in Germany is amazing. It's one of my favorite visual moments where we we hear the classical music and then we see that shot of the Quinjet just drifting in the clouds as it's flying is mm. so I don't know what it is about it, but it is one of the greatest like marriages of classical music makes everything better. It does. It absolutely does. But just there's something about the shot, like the distance to the jet, the angle, and the fact it's kind of moving side. Oh, and then we we move in and we see the arrows going into the guy's silhouettes. That whole and of course, obvi- like with Loki and his, I love his transformation when his real the, garb. The music changes as he comes on and the, screen. The horns grow out as he walks. That the whole scene is awesome. <laughs> comes in yeah. with ACDC with Tony and everything. Oh, awesome stuff. It's great. It's great. <laughs> it's so great. Uh, forest fight is fun. Really creative. You know, powers at 400%. How about that? <laughs> A really cool, really fun little scene. And, I mean, seeing Mjolnir hit the vibranium shield is also just awesome. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, Cap, 
I love that this cat doesn't care about you. These guys are basically cuts. There's only one god man, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't just like that. And he's, you know, he's 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 just totally willing to wade into this like all-out brawl between Iron Man and a god with nothing more than shield. Because that's his job, and he's a soldier. Because that's what heroes do. Yes. They don't do what Thor did later on in the series. I'm going to complain about that. I was going to say, I think we might have... Yeah. Ever since the Thor episode, we've complained about that. And I'm going to keep it up. I'm going to be complaining in every single movie until we get there. And who knows? Maybe with this re- this retrospect, I'll like it this time. No, I won't. And dude, seeing Thanos now post-Infinity War and Endgame is totally different than seeing Thanos in, you know, in every time I saw the movie up till then. It's actually scary this time. Yeah, that that turn and that smile, like, oh, we know he can back it up. We know he can back that smug smile up. Dang it! All right, so you uh, any, anything at all you want to mention? <laughs> well, <laughs> or are you ready to move I the mean, score? it's perfect. <laughs> That's my final perfect. perfect. Um, no, the Avengers, the Avengers theme is also perfect. Uh, yeah. So speaking of the score, I'm really glad uh, that Alan Silvestri was kind of freed up from having to sound so absurdly traditional and patriotic in that score. Um, he's like. He's able to let loose a lot more. And the Avengers theme is just amazing. Like, I I get chills every time I listen to it. Yep. And that's the thing. Like like I said, the, the moment that I knew this was something big was whenever I hear that music and I see it paired with the name Avengers. It's just, yeah, that, that is that has become. Like, that, that theme was sewn into the concept of Avengers at that point, and that is the official Avengers theme, and that is all that there can be said about it. Yeah, it says something that, you know, for how few themes have been, you know, have had any real lasting, uh, lasting impression in the MCU, the Avengers theme has never wavered. Like the entire, it, it's, it was so ingrained in the pop culture that the entire marketing campaign for both Infinity War and Endgame was the Avengers theme. Like all the trailers, you know, primarily played that. And, you know, going, like, remember you're talking about the Thor theme, I, I loved how versatile it was and this is the same with this, this theme is so versatile it can be played all over so many different tones like it's thinking like the end of infinity where you have that really tragic solo piano version of it or this gigantic bombastic version um and i, I like the way he plays around with it all throughout the film we, we have the full version over the main the titles but there are other little parts where it kind of pops up like like when Colson we're not, not Colson went off Nick Fury lands out of the helicopter like we see the beginnings of the Avengers theme which which makes sense you know because really Fury is the Avengers like as soon as he left everything went to hell for those guys <laughs> um but like it doesn't crescendo in that moment uh like, like the helicarrier we get like a it's kind of like it's like trying to become the Avengers theme but it, you know, it, it never crescendos either I just love the way he used it and then we finally get that full burst after it's been teased out the entire film you get that full burst you know in uh, uh, Assemble also Portals uh, do you, you, know, you, know, you know the music that plays over the portal scene in Endgame spoilers for Endgame um, you know, like dun 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 I thought that was an original piece, but actually, I heard it in uh, in the in the track assemble, you know, right before as they're all coming together before the thing before the um the full Avengers theme comes in, and I totally geeked out hearing it. Nice. I do, however, have a serious problem with what Al Silvestri did because he uses the Cap theme a lot. The Cap theme comes in and out like he never. It's mostly like tiny little moments, like when Cap jumps out of the back of the plane or when he uh arrives in Germany. Like there's those moments of the Cap theme. 
but he uses it pretty liberally. However, he doesn't use Tony's theme and he doesn't use Thor, Thor's theme, which is inexplicable because like, we have a track called Sons of Odin that is inc- an incredibly versatile theme that can cover just about any tone. And we have a quiet, emotional conversation between the Sons of Odin. Why doesn't he play the Sons of Odin theme? And so so I, there was a quote from him and, or well, I think it was either from him or or Joss Whedon, because I know it was a decision that came to together. It was him. The one I sent to you? Or or in, the, in that article I sent to you? Oh, that may have been it, yeah. Where they, uh, so I'm not sure what the actual quote was, but the the idea was that uh, it's it would be too much to have to like have all these different individual individual themes like oh so and so's on the screen all right play that track oh so and so's on the screen play that track this- which is what he did with Captain it's America's the- theme which he wrote of and course and that's the thing if he didn't do that for Cap I'd be like okay I don't like that decision but whatever but like you're and like you said they're they're also really subtle it's never like dun, 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 dun. it's not like hogging up your everything going on it's not drawing attention to itself it's just happening in passing which is proof that it could be done. So, uh, yeah, it's really frustrating. And, like, there's so many moments where it was, like, or Tony's theme, like, there are a lot of badass Iron Man moments that you could have had. Like, he does, like, in the the track, Start Goes Green, there is a bit of that electric vibe. I I really got, like, some of the the aerial shots or where we're just kind of gliding over the city and going over to to his house in Iron Man 1 or something. I definitely got that vibe from some of that. Yeah. And also, like, there's, like, some really sweet, nice piano music over the moment between him and Pepper. Like, why didn't they bring back the Tony and Pepper's love theme? Like, they had a really sweet love theme from the previous two films. Like, uh, like uh, th- this is a fantastic score. I'm, I'm nitpicking because this is an amazing score. It's a great listen. But, like, why not use that wonderful material they, ha- they had in, like, so many scenes that would have been really that would have really been served well by you having it. Um, the final one I, I do want to um, mention is the track, A Promise, which offers like this, this like soft, soothing guitar music, which feels so weird and out of place, but it's so perfect. I was about to say, it's so, it's so weird. It feels so specific to this movie and this time, but I still love it. Yeah, and then it just slowly builds into the Avengers theme. And, it's like, and I love like the, the final time we hear the theme. It's not that bombastic version. It's like a really confident, noble, strong version that never like goes over the top of the, the Avengers theme. It's just I love I love when a, a theme can kind of like be slowly matured throughout a, a film. All right, so uh, moving into our, our final uh, star rating and ranking, uh, what do you rate this film out of five stars, James? And how do you rank the MCU so far? Well, it's five stars without even a second's hesitation. I, Did I, we have a single criticism? I aside have, from the score? And honestly, I don't even know if that's a criticism because it's like within a moment, it's like whatever. Every Everything I'm seeing I is mean, awesome. It, yeah, it's criticizing something for not being there. Like, it's not actually criticizing something exactly. there. If I were to just say, like, if you were to say what's wrong with this movie, I'd say, like, just go away. <laughs> I'm not going to give you an answer, so just leave because I, I don't have one. I really, really love pretty much everything about this movie. So yeah, five stars without question. Uh, ranking, I go this easily my number one. I know there are people who would still argue like Iron Man one is the best. Still, I not no, it's not. <laughs> Avengers of these, especially of Phase one, uh, it goes Avengers number one, then Iron Man number two. Then for me, uh, number three is Captain America: First Avenger. Number four is Thor. Number five is Iron Man two, and number six is The Incredible Hulk. Yeah, it's five stars for me, no question. Again, one last, it's perfect. Uh, like it, it's not. It's not just that it's perfect. 
It's like it excels at every moment. It's like not not like not. It would, it would have been perfect if everything was good and everything worked smoothly and it, you know it did its job. But like it doesn't just do its job. It does like the best job it could have possibly done at every moment of its existence. It's just a, an absolute joy to watch. And uh, like you know, every now and then, if I like haven't seen it for a year or two and going back to, there's always that fear like. Will it work as well? And it always does. And I always come away just absolutely loving it. It is, it is it's just a perfect blockbuster, um, which is crazy because like it's, it was, I don't know, like maybe Return of the King was more ambitious, but like it's one of the most ambitious films ever made at the time. And like people did not know if it could work. Like just, there'd never been a film like this with so many just all, like, you know, was it five, six lead characters and well, yeah, I'm six now that Black Widow's going to have her own movie. Like six, like leading characters, all coming together, and you also have to give us, you know, the biggest, biggest action sequence that we've ever seen on film. And it just does it, it and it feels so effortless. Yeah, so it's um five stars, and my ranking is the Avengers, Iron Man, Thor, the Incredible Hulk, Captain America: The First Avenger, and then at the bottom, Iron Man Two. All right, so as far as the uh, box office uh, on its. Re- Initial release, it earned six hundred and twenty-three million domestically and eight hundred and ninety-five million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of one billion five hundred and eighteen million. <laughs> this would be the highest grossing MCU film at the time by about nine hundred million. Like, I think Iron Man 2 was in like maybe was in like the seven hundred millions. Like that, that that was the peak of the MCU before that. And then this film came out and just doubled it. Yeah, and it would remain the highest grossing MCU film until 2018, uh, where it was passed domestically by Black Panther and then worldwide later that year, oh, worldwide and domestically uh, by Infinity War. Currently, it is the fourth highest grossing MCU film domestically, although it's the second if you adjust for inflation, and then the third highest grossing MCU film worldwide after uh, Endgame and Infinity War. As far as the critical reception, everybody loved it. But also, like th- this was like a, this was like a proper you know phenomenon, and the crazy thing with this movie is that it, it it's like a true all quadrants movie where it it made just the biggest uber nerd you could find they would love it, but also like normal people like like my mom who hates all superhero movies with a passion enjoyed this movie, and it, it just it was a it was a movie that could just that could make everyone happy, which is so rare. And also, as far as awards, it did receive an Oscar nomination for a Best VFX, but it lost uh, to Life of Pi in uh, Richard Parker. Mm. Sad day. Although that was a beautiful-looking movie. It's a beautiful-looking tiger. Uh, as far as the film's legacy, <laughs> I mean, I think the current landscape of the blockbuster is its legacy right now. The, the big universe the shared universe though if you had to really like point at a specific legacy that's the film's biggest legacy like we've got we we had a failed attempt with the dark universe amazing spider-man tried to do it yeah justice league i was about to say you've got maybe doing it (laughs) attempt we'll see at the i mean like the cinematic universe is is the name of the game in in, in film now i mean even freaking godzilla is it on that action like everybody's showing up for it it's a true like that this word is overused, but it is a true game changer. Like after this, the sky is truly the limit for the superhero genre. Like people doubted it before, but nope. Now just it's just the genre just keeps getting bigger and bigger after this movie. Like it it, it freed it, it allowed 
film, you know, studios to get truly ambitious with them. But it also, I, I think it, it, it showed like what could happen when you put like a, a real auteur behind the camera. Like, you know, it doesn't, that doesn't always work. But like when you have a director with such a unique voice and just is allowed to just, you know, do their thing respectfully to the, to the characters. Like, I, I don't think you get things like, you don't get movies like the last Jedi without, uh, without something like this. I don't think. Yeah. Where you can, where you just feel like you're free to give an eccentric filmmaker 200, you know, $200 million to, um, <laughs> some people will probably say that they shouldn't have given him that money, but that aside, like it, it, it I think it, it, again, it, it changed how the business is done. Yeah. And I, I think also something else, and, and this is maybe just conjecture and we'll see if it holds true as we look at the box office going forward. But I also think this kind of redefined what we expect these things to make as well. Like you look at phase one, aside from Iron Man, it's like, yeah, they, they did well. But then once we saw how much we cared about these characters and this universe and they're going to make more after this, like this wasn't the grand finale. There's there's even more. We're going to have sequels and stuff. People showed yeah, Iron Man made a billion. Do what? Iron Man 3. Iron Man 3 yeah, made a billion. So like going forward, this raised the bar for what we expect blockbuster films to put out. And that's why I think we're starting to have to readjust that because... You know, Endgame is is kind of capped off. Just made all of the monies. Yeah, they, they've they've made all of the money there is to make. But like this this the Infinity Saga now that it's done, like I've seen people kind of start to to call Toy Story four uh, not a flop, but kind of like a disappointment. There was another a big one. Things that, at like seven hundred million. That's <laughs> but the, the thing is like we we are seeing movies not hit certain marks. And taking that as a failure, when in reality, I think we're we're finally losing what the Avengers injected into the blockbuster into the, into the summer, and so because these characters are kind of gone and we're not ready to go out in droves in the same way, and so I think for about like just short of ten years, you know this this made the blockbuster bigger than it ever was. And as far as like the public consciousness, this is still like, I don't know if there's a single ranking of the MCU that doesn't have this movie, at least in the top five. And everybody likes this movie. Even people who hate the MCU, as I said, like I don't feel like there's been any, any real change in its legacy. Just like everyone loved it at the time. And it's still like that. And may it ever be. Amen. <laughs> so that was our review of The Avengers. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, if you did, I'd ask you to please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Uh, if you want to like us on Facebook, we are there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. And if you want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, we are there as at Franchise Pod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? You can follow me over at Letterboxd. I'm there as JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. And you can also join us over on Facebook uh, at the Outer Rim, a Star Wars group. We are still right in the, the middle of the Star Wars marathon, coming to the end, really right at the end of our Clone Wars marathon. Uh, so we're about to all watch Revenge of the Sith together, leading up to Rise of Skywalker. So if you really love Star Wars and you're excited about watching it and talking about it with other people, definitely join us over there. And I'm also on Letterboxd and there's Gabriel Green. You can follow me on Twitter as Gabe A. Green and I'm on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. And uh, so for next week, uh, we'll be talking about um, a film that is absolutely as beloved as The Avengers. 
Shane Black's Iron Man 3. Man, I am going to come out swinging for this movie. I <laughs> absolutely love this. Spoiler, spoiler alert right here. I love this movie, and so if anybody's thinking about skipping because they like it and they're not ready to hear it trashed on, I, you will have a chance. Well, now you just lost the rest of the audience who hates this movie. Oh, dang it. Who wants to hear us trash it. Thanks, James. All right, so until next week, we will see you in the sequel. Maybe your arm comes, and maybe it's too much for us, but it's all on you. Because if we can't protect the Earth, we could be damn well sure we'll avenge it.